Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Well, we've been uh, reading and studying Jesus' life and ministry as it's recorded in the Gospel of John. Uh, and in the Gospel of John in particular, uh, you get layers and layers of meaning to Jesus' life and actions. And so what you have by the time that you reach the end of the gospel is this really rich picture uh, of who God is and what God has done. In fact, one of John's primary goals in writing his gospel was to help us to know Jesus. And today we're in John chapter 18. Uh, there's only 21 chapters in John, and so we are coming to the end of, of what has been almost a year-long study in the gospel of John. My hope and prayer is that as we have studied together, uh, that you have come to a greater awareness of who God is, but also internalized the teachings of Jesus, uh, particularly in relation to how he teaches and communicates uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, I am convinced that central uh, to the Christian life and the message it is recognizing and beginning to see uh, the true beauty of the kingdom of God. So, well, what we've done today is we've come to the part of the gospel where the pace really picks up, and it starts to read like a thrilling novel. Uh, and so chapter 18 is where uh, the conflict has been, the conflict that has been boiling all along uh, comes to the surface and finally bursts into a full boil. And so, I will invite those of you who are able to stand, uh, to stand for the reading of the scriptures. I'm going to read John chapter 18, the first 27 verses. Uh, after I'm done reading, I'm going to respond with, I'm going to say, this is the word of God for the people of God, and I invite your response of thanks be to God. Uh, and I do invite you also to be patient, this is a lengthy passage, but John chapter 18 says this. Now when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kindred Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Well, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. Now when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. But again he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, and if you are looking for me, then let these men go. Now this happened so that the words that had been spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave to me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and they brought him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And Caiaphas is the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man would die for the people. Now Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to stay outside of the door. 
Now the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to a servant girl on duty there, and then brought Peter in. Aren't you one of this man's disciples too? She asked Peter, and he replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire that they had made to keep warm, and Peter also was standing there with them, warming himself. Now meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. So why question me? Ask those who have heard me. Surely they know what I have said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way that you answer a high priest, he said. <coughs> if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what it is that is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, then why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of those disciples too, are you? And he denied it, saying, I'm not. Now one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had just cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Now for us, reading this story thousands of years later, uh, we, can kind of, we can say that we kind of saw this coming. But for those who were living through it, Jesus' arrest certainly would have been a sharp turning point in the story. You see, from our perspective, Jesus has been hinting all along that he is going away, uh, even at a couple of times telling the disciples specifically, I am going to die. The disciples just not having ears to hear. And those things combined with the fact that, the, that his message of love and forgiveness and mercy Threatens the status of threatens the status quo of the powers that be. That, that now, as readers, we can see where this story is headed all along. To us, it isn't at all surprising that an angry mob comes to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. The disciples would have certainly believed that that wouldn't amount to much because Jesus is, in fact, they believe, the long-awaited Messiah. And so certainly God would protect him from any harm coming to him. And so yes, on, on some levels, Jesus wasn't liked, but God had an obligation to protect his Messiah, and even with force and violence if necessary. But now Jesus had been arrested by the very people who were so angry at him that at some points they were willing to plot to kill him. And so the disciples are certainly feeling like this. Jesus now having been arrested, this could quickly get out of hand. I want you to imagine that what, what a whirlwind this must have been like for the disciples. That here they are, they're, they're praying in the garden, that, that, that things seem to be reaching a, a fever pitch, that, that something is about to happen, something is about to go down, we don't know exactly what's What's, happened, what's taking place, but, but the, there, there's just this feeling in the air that something is about to burst. And so they go to a garden, a quiet garden, in the middle of the night to pray. 
And then soldiers burst on the scene with torches and lanterns and weapons. It was dark, it was confusing, it was unclear what exactly was happening. And then Jesus is arrested. Now it seems that the whole world is being unraveled one event at a time. And then there is Peter. There's Peter after the arrest, following behind as they take Jesus into custody. And then finding a place by the fire to warm himself in the chill of the evening. You can imagine then that sitting by the fire, warming himself. Breathing in the smell of the flame and the smoke. Thinking about all that has gone on, trying to process the events that had literally just happened. When someone calls out to him, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? And almost without thinking, in the face of confusion, in the face of uncertainty, and now certainly in the face of personal threat for association with this man, this man who's been arrested and caused such an upheaval to the, to the culture, any association with him would certainly mean personal threat to me. So now, in the face of confusion, and in the face of uncertainty, and in the face of personal threat, Peter denies any association with Jesus. And he does it three times. How could this be? I mean, this isn't the kind of man that Simon Peter was. He wasn't a, a denier of Christ. That wasn't something consistent with his, with his character. That wasn't his M.O. <laughs> this isn't the man that we know. Because this is the man, Simon Peter. This is the man who tried to refuse that Jesus would wash his feet. Because Peter recognized that for Jesus, who is the Messiah, to do so would be to lower the status of the Messiah. And so when Jesus offers to wash his feet, Simon Peter says, no, no, no. Someone in your role, in your position, cannot lower themselves to wash my feet. And this is the one, Simon Peter, who at Jesus' arrest was ready and willing to resort to violence in order to protect Jesus, even cutting off a man's ear, and certainly willing to do more harm if needed. This is the man who, because of his unwavering commitment to Christ and to Jesus, followed behind him after his arrest. He didn't want to leave Jesus. And while we can't read the mind of Simon Peter, it, it, we can say and know with certainty that based on his actions, whatever doubts were floating around in his mind related to, is Jesus really the Messiah or not, now that he's been arrested and taken into custody, whatever doubts were swirling around regarding the nature of the Messiahship of Jesus that didn't change the fact that Jesus was a friend and that he needed someone there. And so he follows Jesus after the arrest. This is a passionate follower of Christ who now finds himself denying even knowing Jesus. Can you imagine the guilt? Can you imagine the shame, the regret, the disappointment in himself? In fact, as the other Gospels, we don't get this in the Gospel of John, but as the other Gospels record this story, they say that as soon as the rooster crowed, Peter realized what he had done, and he wept 
bitterly. But in an instant, he realized, what in the world have I done? And it brought him to tears. You know the feeling, don't you? I know I do. Surely you, like all of us, have had moments when you let down someone you love. When you said something that you regret, made a decision that you knew wasn't right. Those moments when you wish that you had performed better, that you had stood up for what was right, that you had met expectations and then didn't, but didn't, but didn't, and you failed. And you wish you could go back, and you wish you could fix it, you wish you could make it right, and there's, there's only so much that could be done, and in some situations, depending on all that, that's going on and all the moving pieces, you, you sort of recognize and sit in the reality that there is nothing that can be done. I, I just have to live with what has been done. And you did something like that, and looking back, it feels so contrary to your nature, or to your character, or to your intention. I know that I've certainly been there, and I bet that you have too. But here's what happens. If, if the failure or the hurts or the disappointments in our life are significant enough, what happens is it's, it's really easy to begin to allow that to define our lives. If the mess up is big enough, if the pain is deep enough, if the loss is significant enough, it's possible that we begin to, to reorient our entire lives around that pain and around that disappointment. And I can certainly imagine that that's where Peter was at, right? I mean, Peter, Peter had this, this old life. He was a fisherman. And it was, a, it was a decent trade, it was a decent living, it's what he had grown up in, it's what his father and his grandfather and his grandfather's father had done. He was a fisherman, but he was called out of that into something new, and that something new was building, and it was going somewhere, and I, I have been, I've been brought to the side of, of what the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and, and then Peter is actually not just one of the disciples, but he's in the in crowd. Every time that there's a disciple to be chosen, he's chosen. I mean, he's in the inner circle of the Messiah of, of the world, the long-awaited Messiah. And all of a sudden, his life has been rescued from something that seemed rather insignificant. And now his life is headed on a trajectory that's going somewhere. There's good things happening. And then in a moment of uncertainty, in a moment of unclarity, in a moment of personal threat, all of that comes crashing down with three denials. And if you can put yourself in Peter's shoes, and I don't know if you've been in something that significant in your life, but if you can put yourself inside of Peter's shoes, you can understand that it would be very easy to take that failure and that pain and that disappointment and begin to reorient my entire life around that moment. It's a real temptation. Maybe you are there, maybe someone that you know is there, but the moments when their whole lives become about what went wrong or what could have been or what almost was or what, uh, what could have been done or the opportunity that was lost. And then all of a sudden, their, their whole lives have a new orientation or a reorientation of guilt, of shame, of disappointment, of any, of any other scope of emotions. 
And they say, they say, that time heals all wounds. But time can't trump our senses. Sometimes even a smell can bring us right back to that place. That conversation, that pain. So out of nowhere, maybe it's a smell or a sound or a perfect mix of ambiance that in a moment brings us right back and tempts us once again to reorient our reality around the disappointment, the pain, and the failure. So they say time heals all wounds, but time cannot trump our senses. I'm sure that's how it was for Peter as well. It's been a few days now since Peter denied knowing Jesus, and a lot has happened. Because after the arrest, things escalated quickly, and that very night, Jesus was killed by way of crucifixion. Crucifixion, the, the cruelest, most inhumane, most shameful way to die. The, the kind of death reserved only for the worst kinds of criminals was given to a man who was believed to be the Savior. That was on Friday. And now, two days later, all Peter can think about was how he had denied knowing the man that he had come to love and know as the Messiah, and he didn't get a chance to make it right. He didn't get a chance to go to Jesus and say, I'm sorry. He didn't get a chance to say in a moment of, of honesty and confession, look, Jesus, here's what happened. And, and, and let me just explain to you where I was coming from. Like every attempt that he had or that he would have made to, to make it right, everything escalated so quickly that those chances were lost. And so now all Peter can think about two days later is how he let down this friend that he had called Messiah. In fact, of all the endings that he could have come up with or could have dreamed up, this was what had actually happened was worse than all of those. How could he live through the guilt? How could he heal from the pain? How in the world could he ever move on? But then, but then on Sunday, on Sunday, Mary came running up to Peter, saying, Jesus' tomb was empty. <laughs> now Peter, not believing it for himself, himself ran to the very tomb and, to see it for himself, and he goes inside of the tomb, and there he sees strips of linen that used to wrap the body of Jesus, but there they are, laid perfectly as if they had been taken off and then folded. <laughs> and, and then, of course, at first he doesn't even understand all that this has meant until he saw Jesus with his very own eyes. He was fishing. A few days later, after all this had gone back, all this had gone down, all this had happened, he was out fishing with other disciples. It's an interesting detail that he was out fishing. Remember, Jesus, he, he had come, and, and Peter was just in this, in this, this life of, of fishing and, and doing what his generations had done after him, and it seemed like a decent way of life, but then Jesus came and, and called him, and he, and he said, yes, I'll come and I'll follow, and then his life is put on a new trajectory, but then everything comes crashing down, well, what do you do? What choice do you have when everything comes crashing down, but to return to the very thing that you knew before, and so Peter is there fishing, returning to his old life, because what other options do you have after a dead Messiah and a failure? 
but to return to your old life and your old work. But I have to tell you, after so much time off, he's lost his touch as a fisherman. Because fishing, it turns out, is, uh, is way more art than science, and you have to cultivate the craft if you want to be any good at it. And all the fishermen said, Amen. <laughs> and then the man on the shore calls out, Any fish? To which I'm sure Peter said, Why do people insist on making this the first point of conversation with the fishermen? <laughs> it's a curious thing, right? No one comes up to me as a pastor and says, Any sermons? <laughs> to which I'm always ready to say yes. <laughs> but here he is, there's a man on the shore that says, any fish? And certainly not wanting to linger on his bad luck. Peter replies with a simple no. And the mystery man on the shore calls out with some advice. Something all fishermen want, of course. <laughs> Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Typical advice. As though that would make any difference. Does this man on the shore think that there's a whole school of fish who are just hanging out, hiding underneath the boat? There's certainly no harm in trying. Something is better than nothing. And so that's what they do. They throw their nets to the other side of the boat. And suddenly their whole net is full of fish. And they were convinced. This was no coincidence. This was a miracle. And miracles, well, they knew a guy that used to do a lot of miracles. And so John, who's in the boat, John and Peter were close friends, and so John is in the boat, and he calls out after this miracle of just simply throwing the nets to the other side, and now the net's being captured full of fish. John cries out, it's the Lord! And Peter, Peter is never one for caution, uh, Peter is always just like full bore, right? And so Peter, so excited to see Jesus again, jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore. And now Peter finds himself back at a fire. Cooking fish. Breathing in again the smell of the flames and the smoke. Say time heals all wounds, but time can't trump our senses. And so Peter immediately is reminded of just a few days earlier when he had denied and rejected Jesus. And I want you to picture this. The man on the shore is in fact the Messiah, risen from the dead. Peter, in an excitement to see him, jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore, now soaking wet standing by fire, cooking all of the spoils of their catch. And with Jesus right there beside him, all he can think about is the failure of a few days before. How he had let Jesus down. I, if I could put myself in Peter's shoes, I would say Peter has lost all confidence of being a disciple. How can I go on? How can I be a disciple? Even though everything has changed with Jesus right here, how can I go on? I had let him down so deeply. And then Jesus starts a conversation 
that will change everything. My conviction this morning is that you can't read John chapter 18 in Peter's denial without also reading John chapter 21. I just want to read portions of John 21 to you today. This is the conversation that went on after the miraculous catch of fish, and now that Peter is standing there by the fire, certainly reminded of all that had gone on. Starting with verse 15, it says this. Now when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. I want you to imagine just how significant these words were for Peter to speak out loud after his failure. After letting Jesus down, after having his life on a trajectory and then all of that crashing down, I want you to realize just how important these words were for Peter to speak. Yes, Lord, I do love you. It was, it was the opportunity to make right what he had never had a chance to make right. He wanted to go to Jesus, he wanted to apologize, he wanted to do everything he could do to make it right. And here is Jesus offering him an opportunity to do so, and Peter jumps at it. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But then Jesus says, then feed my lambs. In verse 16, again Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon's kind of going, oh, what is this all about? I thought, I thought you, you told me all about grace and all about forgiveness. Why do you need to ask me again? And, and so you could, he, he answered, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And, and then, then the third time, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time. I want you to hear that. It's like, oh, it, it, it goes from, Having an opportunity to say what I didn't have a chance to say to make this right. Yes, Lord, I love you. To, well, do you really love me? Do you really love me? To the point where now Peter is hurt. That Jesus would ask this a third time. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all these things. You know that I love you. It's Peter's way of saying, Messiah, surely you see my heart. And Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but you are old with which you will stretch out your hands, and someone will dress you and lead you where you want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Jesus would, by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him these familiar words: Follow me. Well, at first, even for us as, as readers, it may seem antagonistic for Jesus to do this three times, asking, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What I want you to see is that this is actually a restorative act on the part of Jesus. That Jesus provides equal opportunity for Peter to reveal his heart and to offer him forgiveness. And it's actually a key part of the healing from the denial that haunts him. That, that Three times if I denied Christ, and then in the wisdom of Jesus, three times he's going to ask me to affirm his love for him as a restorative act, 
of the denial that haunts him. And so he experiences the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but I want you to see this. The forgiveness of Jesus isn't just a pat on the back that says, it'll be all right, no harm done. But rather, with each confession of love, and I want you to hear this, church, with each confession of love, Jesus gives Peter a new commission, a new work, a new mission to go and do. With each time, he says, go and feed my sheep. In other words, Jesus invites Peter once again to participate with the work that he is called to. And so again, let's remember, he's living this life, it's ordinary, his life is put on a new trajectory, he fails, it's his fault, he lets all of that come crashing down, and then he has a chance to build that back up, but not just with forgiveness, yes, you are forgiven, but it's not just, oh, no harm done, no harm, no foul, it's okay, but rather, it's a, you are forgiven, now pick back up where you left off, and go and do a new work, and participate with me once again. In other words, I want to say to you this morning, it isn't just forgiveness, it's restoration. It's trusting Peter to go and do the work on his behalf, even after a failure. And so I want you to hold on to this truth. Restoration is forgiveness made real through trust. Restoration is forgiveness made real through trust. Let me illustrate. As, as our children grow up in our home, we want them to participate in the work of the house. Uh, there are some things in our house that you get paid for, because we're trying to teach a lesson that in the world, if you work, you get paid. If you don't work, you don't get paid. Um, that's an important lesson for kids to know. Uh, but we also want to say there are things that you just need to do as a participant and member of this family by which there is no monetary value. <laughs> it's just That's just part of what you do. Because, after all, keeping a house nice and clean and up and running requires everyone to pitch in. And so one of the ways is that we want our kids to help clean up after dinner. Amy, my wife, does such a tremendous job of making meals for us that are delicious and healthy and, and wonderful. That's right. Uh, <laughs> and she does such a great job. And one of the ways that we want to honor that is uh, a lot, have the kids and myself participate in doing the dishes now, if, uh, that, I, would, I would submit to you that this is risky business. <laughs> um, inviting children to carry glass plates and cups across the kitchen floor is really just asking for it. And so after dinner one evening, Jaden, our oldest, was doing the dishes, and she drops the plate on the floor, and it shatters. It shatters everywhere, and we have an absolute mess Of course, this makes her very upset, right? They say, don't cry over spilled milk, and don't cry over shattered plates. And so, but this is, she's upset. She knows that she has disappointed us. She knows that in her task, to which she has been called, she has failed and let us down. She has not met our expectations. She knows that, and so she weeps bitterly. And we try to comfort her and do our best, despite the fact that we are upset. Uh, it was one of those moments as a parent where you try to temper your first reaction so that you can be a good parent. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? Like you have kind of your gut reaction, and then you're like, wait, I want to be a good parent. And so you try to recalibrate and, and go in a different direction. It was certainly one of those moments for us. Here's the difference. Forgiveness 
is, is comforting Jada and assuring her that her mistake won't be held against her. That's forgiveness. Restoration is handing her the dishwashing wand once again and inviting her to participate. Forgiveness is patting her on the back, giving her a hug, and saying, no harm, no foul. Your mistake won't be held against you. Restoration is saying, here's the towel. Here's the, dis here's the soap. I say to you that I think what God wants to say to us today is that God is in the business of restoration. And that as much as we're tempted to define ourselves by our past failures, by our past hurts, and by your disappointments, and as, as easy it is to, to, in those moments, reorient our entire lives around that thing, and then, and then a, a, a thing with more pain and more disappointment hurts, and so we reorient our lives around that. What God wants to say to us is that he is a God who is in the business of restoration. That, that he, he not only forgives you, but he says, here's, here's the dishwashing towel, here's the soap, now get to work, because I trust you in what you're doing, and I want to invite you to participate with me once again. Because here in this church, after his triple failure, Peter had returned to his old life and returned to his old work. It was the only option that he had. It was the only thing that he knew how to do. But now Jesus forgives him and invites him to take his very wobbly, right? His very wobbly but certain love for Christ and put it toward a new work. In other words, it's Jesus saying, I know that you're a little uncertain of yourself. And I know that your love for me is certain, but a little on a little bit on shaky ground, and it's a little bit wobbly. And Jesus says, I can work with that. <laughs> it's this beautiful picture of hope of, of Peter absolutely crushing, a crushing failure, a crushing blow to the spread of the gospel. And then Peter and then Jesus saying, I can work with that. Let's go. I invite you to a new work. Church, this is the amazing love of God in our lives. The brilliant theologian N.T. Wright says this, Here's the secret of all Christian ministry. Yours and mine lay or ordained full-time or part-time. It's the secret of everything from being a quiet back row member of a prayer group to being a platform speaker at huge rallies and conferences. If you are going to do any single solitary thing as a follower and servant of Jesus, this is what it's built on. This somewhere deep down inside, there is a love for Jesus. And though goodness knows you have let him down enough times, he wants you to find that love and give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the past, and give you a new work to do. Amen? Oh, that's beautiful. That stirred in my heart in a unique way this week, man. That stirred in my heart. In fact, I'm reminded of the lyrics of the worship song, How He Loves, that says this, If grace is an ocean, then we are all sinking. <laughs> I love that metaphor. Listen, Jesus does not erase our past. Jesus doesn't erase your past. 
He redeems your past. And that is so much better than just erasing it. See, the business that Jesus is in, the business that God is doing in the world, is not taking our hurts and failures and disappointments of the past and pretending as though they never happened. But rather, what God is doing is he's taking those hurts and failures and disappointments, and he's somehow working them and moving them and fashioning them into a new work to do. He's redeeming what was lost. That's the beautiful work of what God is up to. Not just turning a blind eye, oh, that never happened, but let's take that as a part of your story and let's redeem it and call you to something new. This is the work that God was doing in the life of Simon Peter, and this is the work that God is doing in our lives today. That the failure, the hurts, the pains, the disappointments are all part of the journey towards something brand new. And if we will dare church to forgive ourselves and extend ourselves grace, then we'll find that Jesus is inviting us to heal from the hurts of the past and to embrace a new work. Amen? And listen, sometimes, sometimes I can tell you that we have come to believe that all this business about grace and forgiveness is something that God has for other people, but not for me. And we can say to someone, oh, in the midst of your hurt and your pain, God forgives you. God forgives your offended then, when it comes to the point of saying, oh, God, is your forgiveness real in my own life? It becomes a lot harder to come to. So sometimes I think a real key part of the healing process is saying, God, help me to experience your forgiveness. And then saying, God, that I'd be courageous enough to extend grace to myself. Listen, I can identify with Simon Peter because I, if I were sitting there next to the, the spoils of all the catch, sitting right next to Jesus, but smelling the flame and the smoke and being reminded of what I had done just a few days earlier and the failure, I would have said, Jesus, I can't be your disciple anymore. you got to pick somebody else. you got to move on to a new team. you, you got to like, the only option for me is to return back to this. And the great beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus says, no. No, I want to take you where you're at, and I'm going to restore you and invite you into something new, a new work in my name. So may God set you free today from the past that haunts you. That's been my prayer this week and this morning. That God would set us free from whatever it is in the past that haunts you. And yes, it will always be part of your story, but God is so good that he gathers all those things up and invites us to something new. So today I want you to leave with the assurance of God's forgiveness. That whatever the nature of your past failures, that God loves you and God forgives you. God doesn't stop there. God now invites you to participate in the new work fueled by love for him and love for people. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we are thankful for your presence. I'm thankful, God, for this word that you have given to us. Given to us by grace 
spoken to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I've done my best to communicate words of truth today. I pray now that they would find root in our hearts through your presence in this place. God, be with us as we gather around the table, as we sing. May you continue to meet with us, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name.